from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. This is Post Reports. I'm Maggie Penman, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 26th. Today, Beijing moves to tighten its grip on Hong Kong, the summer movie Hollywood's betting on, and a bus driver on the front lines. This past weekend in Hong Kong, we saw a return to the protest that basically defined the city last year. There were tens of thousands of people taking the street once again, this time to protest against China's latest effort to get Hong Kong more under its control. My name is Shabani Matani, and I'm the Hong Kong bureau chief for The Washington Post. This time, uh, China has perhaps taken its boldest move yet here in Hong Kong, this sweeping new law that will basically outlaw terrorism, successionism, a subversion of the state, as well as foreign interference. All these things are very broad, and protesters, activists, normal people fear it will mark the end of their lives in Hong Kong as they know it, the end of the freedoms they've always enjoyed will, will disappear. One of the central principles of the rule of law is that everyone is equal. No one is above the law. Not even the chief executive is above the law. Are they saying that there will be a commission or an organization in Hong Kong that is above the law? Then that will be the end of Hong Kong. There are uh, pro-democracy legislators here who are very vocal about how they feel about the direction Hong Kong is heading in. Would they ever be able to run again? Would they all be, you know, disqualified, criminalized? Um, for journalists too, the the impact is so wide-reaching. Uh, the 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 moment we heard news of this law uh, last week, people in Hong Kong were stunned. They were shocked, shattered, heartbroken. Some of our friends were, were, were crying. Others were having panic attacks. It's really quite worrying to think of, of the spiral that, that Hong Kong is, is in right now. The protests seem to, to justify you know, um, officials from, from mainland China and the Hong Kong government saying, oh, well, look at these violent rioters. This is this is what um, exactly the, the, the national security law is going to stamp out. This is exactly why, why it's needed. And the more they say that, the more, you know, insistent the protesters are and coming out, making their point and perhaps using even more violent and even more radical tactics. So this bill is really a huge deal for Hong Kong and for the future of the city. My name is Emily Rahala, and I cover foreign affairs. So Hong Kong, until 1997, was basically a a British colony and was administered by the United Kingdom. I should like on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen and of the entire British people to express our thanks, admiration, affection, and good wishes to all the people of Hong Kong who have been such staunch and special friends. In 1997, as the country prepared for a return to Chinese sovereignty, the leaders of China and the United Kingdom struck a deal. 
And the deal was basically that for 50 years, the unique status of Hong Kong would be protected. And what that meant was in Hong Kong, unlike in the People's Republic of China, just across the border, there would still be capitalism. There would still be freedom of the press. The people of Hong Kong could stage protests. They could publish information that's critical of the leaders. And this sort of compromise system called One Country, Two Systems was supposed to stay in place until 2047. But really since the handover in 1997, that compromise, that sort of temporary status for Hong Kong has been challenged with the Beijing side constantly trying to sort of take more and more control of Hong Kong. And uh, since 2014, when we had the Umbrella Movement, really dramatic, uh, dramatic but peaceful protests in Hong Kong calling for democracy. We've seen an acceleration of Beijing's attempts to sort of work away at that one country, two systems framework and slowly have more and more control over Hong Kong and the type of city that it is. So China's legislature is considering a security bill that's expected to pass as soon as this week. What is this bill and how significant is it? This bill is really huge. And even though things in Hong Kong have been very tense, and even though things have been deteriorating, a lot of people in Hong Kong and a lot of people outside of Hong Kong were caught by surprise by not just the timing of how they're doing it, sort of right in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, and also the way that they're planning to get this security legislation on the books. A lot of people thought that this type of national security legislation from China would be done basically through Hong Kong, through its own governing structures. What's happening is that right in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, with the United States occupied by its own you know, coronavirus crisis, with Britain occupied by its own coronavirus crisis, China has decided to sort of shove this through its own rubber stamp legislative process in Beijing, very far from Hong Kong very far from, you know, Hong Kong's semi-democracy. And they're going to shove through this legislation probably this week, and it'll be a really big change for Hong Kong. Yeah. So why push it through in this way so quickly when there's a good chance that this could backfire? So if you talk to, you know, the folks in Beijing, China's leaders, if you read um, Chinese uh, party-controlled media, what they say is this is simply a law and order matter. In light of the new circumstances and need, the MPC is exercising the power enshrined in the Constitution. These laws are going to protect Hong Kong. They're going to keep people safe. And, you know, they're clearly a response to the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. In the Hong Kong SAR and to uphold and improve the institutional framework of one country, two systems. What many Hong Kong people fear is that these national security rules will be used to stifle dissent, to change the way that Hong Kong is governed. There is a fear that these new rules are going to be used to, for instance, stifle journalists, to stop freedom of speech, to target critics, to target academics who are critical of the government in Beijing. Some of the things that uh, you have said about mainland agencies coming down to arrest people, undergoing protest, and uh, they will be arrested, the calling the chief executive to step down at 
the moment are your imaginations. There's really a fear that the laws are going to be applied in a way that will fundamentally change the character of the city. And tensions between the U.S. and China are also at an all-time high. There's the trade war that's ongoing. Uh, President Trump has blamed China for the current pandemic. What has the U.S. response been to this latest news? That's exactly right. I mean, this comes at a time when Washington and Beijing are really facing off in a pretty extreme way. And that's really setting the stage for what happens next. So far, what we've seen from the United States is a lot of you know, statements of condemnation, you know, the U.S. opposes what's happening, you know, and there will be consequences. What we haven't really seen so far is what, if anything, uh, the United States plans to do, whether there'll be a policy response. But one thing that is on the table is the United States could make a decision to change the way that it interacts with Hong Kong. Right now, it says Hong Kong has a degree of autonomy, so we will trade with it under different terms than from the People's Republic of China, just across the border. Good morning, everyone. Uh, And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has warned that this is something that could change if China indeed pushed ahead with these rules. In Hong Kong, our decision on whether or not to identify Hong Kong as having a high degree of autonomy from China is still pending. Closely watching what's going on there. Actions like these make it more difficult to assess the Hong Kong remains highly autonomous from mainland China. So how does this fit into President Xi Jinping's broader political agenda? So that's a really interesting question. And I think there's two ways to look at it. The first is a long view of his time um, running China. So since 2012, he comes on the scene and he has this really bold vision for the, you know, quote, great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. He wants to see China returning to what he sees as its rightful place at the center of the world order. And we see a much more assertive um, Chinese foreign policy, China sort of taking a more bold and aggressive stance on the world stage. And and Hong Kong is really part of that. You know, China's saying to the rest of the world, saying to the United States, saying to Britain, you know, we have our own national interests. Hong Kong is part of that national interest and, and we will defend it. The more immediate context that I think is interesting is the coronavirus crisis. You know, back in January and February, people were looking at the crisis unfolding in Wuhan and saying, you know, Xi Jinping is really in trouble. And what's really remarkable, I think, is the way that he has managed to bounce back from that by rallying um, nationalism at home, by pointing to the sort of disastrous response in the United States, as well as in uh, parts of Europe, and saying to uh, the Chinese people, look, China's doing really great. And in terms of the the short-term context, I think Hong Kong is, is part of that messaging of he's in charge and China's on the rise. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. Shabani Matani is the Southeast Asia Bureau Chief. So what made you want to write about this topic? Well, you know, it's been really interesting, Maggie, over the last, you know, maybe 
month or, or six weeks or so as all these different studios and entertainment companies have been canceling and postponing and deferring and really doing everything that you know we expect them to do during a virus like this. There's been one studio in Warner Brothers that's basically just been, you know, pushing ahead and kind of acting as if everything is normal. Steven Zeitchik covers the entertainment industry for The Post. And lately, as the coronavirus pandemic continues to shut down movie productions and new releases, Steve has been following Warner Brothers and the one movie that's still slated to open in theaters on schedule, the summer blockbuster Tenet from director Christopher Nolan. They've been kind of saying, we're going to release Tenet, this big Christopher Nolan movie in July on schedule. And I think that raised questions for me, as it has for a lot of people who cover this industry of, can they really do this and will this really work? And so, you know, as this conversation has just gotten louder and louder, to me, it's just gotten more and more interesting, the idea of, can you release a movie in a time like this when theaters are not even open and a lot of people aren't comfortable going to them, even if they are? And can you describe a little bit for me the movie Tenant and what it's about? We all believe we've run into the burning building. But until we feel that heat, we can never know. Tenet is the latest movie from Christopher Nolan, who a lot of you will remember from films like Inception and Dunkirk, Interstellar, not to mention all the Dark Knight Batman movies he's done. Welcome to the afterlife. This isn't necessarily a very straightforward plot, but of course, Christopher Nolan fans would expect nothing less. It's also quite murky what this film is actually about. Right now, we get the sense that there's an agent trying to save the world from a terrible disaster. We don't really know what the disaster is. We know it's maybe worse than nuclear holocaust, as the trailer indicates. Since it's Christopher Nolan, we imagine it'll be a lot of ingenuity, a lot of running around, and perhaps some jumping through time. And when is it supposed to be released? So it's supposed to be released July 17th. Uh, That remains the plan. It has not been moved. Every other film has been postponed. Tenet is the one film, July 17th, that has not changed at all since the pandemic broke out. So what exactly is the plan here? Because a lot of theaters aren't even open yet in a lot of cities. And I imagine in the cities that are reopening movie theaters, people might be a little nervous about sitting close to one another in a crowded theater to watch a new movie. Yeah, and it's a great question. And, you know, right now the the plan, if you if you talk to Warner Brothers, at least unofficially, they'll say they're trying to book as many theaters as possible. They recognize it will not be the usual 4,000 screens that we might see for a major blockbuster, but they might get 1,000 or 1,500 or even 2,000, depending, as you say, on how many theater chains are open, how many states and cities and governments allow those openings. The one advantage they do have in terms of screen counts, as, as the industry calls it, is that there really aren't any um, other competing movies. You know, once these theaters open, there's really nothing else for them to show, certainly nothing new. You know, regarding the question of, of whether people will feel comfortable, uh, I think it's a really, really good one and a really, really big challenge for Warner Brothers. You know, there's a, certainly a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of pent-up demand for us to get back out there. But, you know, I've heard from a number of readers since writing the story who've said, I'm really excited to see this Chris Nolan movie, but I'll wait to see it. I'm not going to run out in the middle of July and risk my life or the lives of the people I care about just to see a movie. You know, theaters, sure, they're going to take social distancing precautions. They're going to make people wear masks. They're going to disinfect. They're clearly going to reduce capacity in theaters. So we're not sitting cheek by jowl, 
But is that, will that reassure enough of us that it's safe to go out? I think that really remains to be seen. So can you talk me through sort of just the state of the industry right now and why this movie is so important? Hollywood has really taken a major hit from the coronavirus pandemic, particularly when it comes to theatrical movies. Last year in the April to June period, uh, studios collected over $3 billion in domestic box office. This year, just about 100,000 from a couple of drive-ins and other theaters that are open. July and August back in 2019, over $2 billion dollars. This year, if theaters don't open or if people don't come out, it could be a lot less than that. So the industry is in a really tough spot right now. Hollywood has really struggled for all the sort of positive headlines that a Netflix or a Disney Plus have gotten because clearly traffic is up while we're all we're all stuck at home. There's there's still, you know, just a lot of pain to be felt. There's not a lot of new shows because most shows that were in production had to get shut down. There's no real timetable for when much of it can resume. There's a real dearth of uh, content and a real sort of drying up of various revenue pools. And I think that's really heightening the urgency for a movie like Tenet. Being first could be a big deal. It could mean that, you know, anybody who wants to go to the movies, there's only one movie out there worth seeing and let's just do it. I've talked to a few people just in the last couple of weeks who've said this movie is so important because it means that's going to habituate people to get back to theaters, to get back to spending money outside the home on content. You know, there's a there's a spin here that I got this being the movie that saved the movies. My name is Ira Deutschman, and what I'm probably best known for is um, having been in marketing and distribution of films for many, many, many years. In addition to that, I've spent some time as a producer, and that's what I'm doing as my main activity these days. You know, I'm a big believer, and I gather that there are others that feel this way too, that once things are truly eased up whenever that actually does happen, that people are going to flock back to the movies because they've been pent up for a long period of time. So I think that the job of the exhibitors, the people who run the theaters, is going to be to show that it can be a safe experience. And they're all working on it right now. Everybody from the big chains down to the little art film theaters are all coming up with contingency plans of all kinds to try to make sure that there's a safe a way of seeing movies. But what's the economic reality for movie theaters? Because I imagine that's an industry that has pretty slim profit margins. And, you know, what does it mean for them if they can only fill up a theater to 30% of its normal capacity? Local movie theaters have been hit very hard by this pandemic. I know that a lot of a lot of the focus has been on AMC and Regal and the big chains, but local movie theaters are really in a tough spot. These are theaters that don't make money most days of the week, often uh, can only be at partial capacity when there's no pandemic going on, and they really rely on a couple of hits or popular events to kind of get them through. One programming director I talked to in D.C. for the Avalon Theater basically said that you're really looking at only one or two days a week at most, often just a few days a month that are actually profitable. There are a lot of factors that would certainly go into our decision-making as to whether and when to open up. I'm Andrew Mencher. I'm the director of programming at the Avalon. We closed on Saturday, the 14th of March. If theaters reopen anytime soon, they're going to have to social distance and reduce capacity. So that means that even the the screenings that would normally be sold out and kind of carry everything else, they're only going to be at 20, 30 percent capacity. So they're already behind the eight ball and they're going to be uh, in a further tough spot once this uh, once this thing starts to subside and we get out there again. You know, if you look at the traditional patterns as to how 
theaters earn their their revenue, it, it's pretty common that they'll earn 75, almost 80% of their revenue on a weekend. And really primarily at certain times, Friday night, all day, Saturday, Sunday, matinees. So if you have a 200-seat auditorium on a Tuesday, you might be lucky to have 40 people in there for your biggest show. It's it's a tough it's a it's a tough thing to contemplate, you know, h- how it all works because you know you you really rely on those big nights, those the the big capacity filling those theaters up full times a week to make up for all those days when you just don't have as many patrons going to the theaters. So if even movie theaters aren't sure they want to open up with coronavirus precautions, why can't Warner Brothers just release Tenant for streaming? Yeah, well, there have been some movies that have come out on streaming. They tended to be smaller films. The major franchise movies, I'm thinking of films like, you know, the SpongeBob film that Paramount is putting out, or for that matter, Warner Brothers itself with Wonder Woman 1984. These movies have all been postponed till August, till 2021. The big franchise films aren't going to come out on streaming, frankly, because there's just too much money in uh, in, in theatrical revenue. You know, uh, there was Trolls World Tour, which was an animated film that Universal put out last month on digital. That made, according to the company, about $95 million in rental revenue. Uh, the first Trolls film in theaters took in, I, I think, close to half a billion dollars. So clearly there's a big revenue consideration here, and I don't think it's really worth it for most studios to put out a movie that's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars in theaters as Tenet would on streaming. You know, on top of all of that, Christopher Nolan is a very big believer in the theatrical experience, really believes in that kind of tall screen, strangers in a room all reacting to the same thing. He actually did a an op-ed piece uh, in our own pages to that effect. So he's very much not going to be interested in streaming. And again, the studios at this point, for a movie like this, they want all the revenues that come with theatrical. And what's the calculus for Warner Brothers? Why are they pinning their hopes on this movie? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is, you know, it's one of their biggest releases of the year anyway. I mean, this was going to be a big play, pandemic or no. So uh, the fact that they now have uh, an even greater crunch like everyone else, I think, has only increased the importance. I also think Christopher Nolan has just been a very big part of their of their profit strategy over the last few, really over the last 15 years. I mean, this is someone whose movies have made billions of dollars around the world. You know, Christopher Nolan is a proven moneymaker, perhaps one of the biggest in Hollywood, Christopher Nolan movies do not come cheap, and Tenet is no exception. The estimate out there is somewhere in the $200 million range for this film, which is really quite a bit. To have an original film, a non-sequel cost that much is almost unheard of in modern Hollywood. So ultimately, what's the impact of this release? I think the impact to a Tenet release or the lack of a Tenet release is going to be very significant. First of all, that's going to be significant for Warner Brothers, uh, which is counting on this movie as a cornerstone of its 2020 profit strategy. But I think it's also important for the industry as a whole. Pretty much every other studio has basically held back on releasing a movie uh, until they see what Tenet and its juggernaut of a filmmaker can do. And I think that if if this film comes out and does a reasonable amount of business, we're going to see a return uh, both of fans and of money to studios' bottom line. Other movies like SpongeBob, like Wonder Woman 1984, like Mulan are all going to come out. And I think that's going to kind of kickstart the Hollywood economy a little bit. Tenet doesn't come out or if it flops, I think we're going to see a lot of other studios pack their bags till Christmas or even later. And that's going to mean a, an even greater uh, recessionary effect for them. So a lot on the line, not just for Warner Brothers, but for everyone else. Steven Zeitchik covers the entertainment industry for The Post. 
And now, one more thing. If we don't move the city, nothing will move. We are the ones who get people to and from their location all day long in any type of weather, any condition, because we are the first people to get up every day, morning, noon, and night to get whoever to wherever they need to go. Sandra Crawford is a New York City bus driver. She spoke with Post video journalist John Gerberg. Two of my fellow operators died because of the coronavirus. We have to, we had to argue to get face masks, hand sanitizers, gloves, where that should have been a necessity once the virus was really taking effect. I don't feel they should have died because the job is, was supposed to protect us. They were supposed to protect them. It's, it's like you constantly are fearing that someone's going to come in this bus and going to infect you. You're constantly thinking, wow, every little itch or every little cough or any little <clears throat> clear in the throat, you're, you're panicking. So it's like, you're, I stay in a state of panic a lot. And I'm always like, that. even though they're standing in the back of that bus, I'm always watching. I'm always looking to see if they're covered up, if they have on a mask, or if, they, if someone starts coughing, I'm watching that person like, okay, it's time for you to get off. Because some days I'm like, I don't really want to do this. Why am I putting myself through this? I really don't want to die because I do have asthma. So I'm a little leery because that's a respiratory disease. I'm always stressed out. I'm very stressed. I'm arguing with my household about everything because I'm aggravated and I'm stressed. Come on into my little place. Um, I live with my fiance, Mario, and my son, Calvin. And it's just the three of us in our apartment. And since this virus been affected, it's more of a strain on us. Me and my son, we usually hug and, you know, give each other a pound, but we don't touch. We just in the house. We're not amongst one another. He's in the bedroom and the living room. He's in his room. So we're separate in one space. So... I mean, some days is rough. Some days is rough. Now, my son, he worries about me because I'm his mother. And being as well, he hear what's going on. He see what's going on as far as the transit authority. And what's it like, you know, when her coworkers are actually, like, two of them have passed away? I mean, what's that like for you? That's scary because my mother does the same thing they were doing, driving a bus in the public. And, and it's really putting her at risk. I really... I don't, I try not to think about the worst, but that's all you see on TV. That's all you see on the news. Yeah. The worst. Every time you turn the TV on. He's always making sure that I have my gloves and my mask. He doesn't care about the rest of the people in the world. Just, Mom, please come back home. Like, he worries. Ooh, you think he's an old man, but he worries bad for me. I love my mother. Like, like this house isn't nothing without her. I could, I could just put it right there. She's the one that goes out there puts food on the table, provides for us. And I feel like it's it's like you walk out the door every day and you never know what if you can come back home. Like you never know what you're bringing home to your family. I appreciate the fact that I have a job. I appreciate the fact that my job allows me medical coverage for myself as well as my family. There are people who are definitely in need of the service. Because I have a few people that, that are actually going to work, like hospitals and morgues or wherever they work. There is someone that actually do need the service. And I just feel that that's my obligation to provide that service at this time. Even though it's harmful to me, because it's harmful to my family as well, I still feel the need to just do my just do. 
I complain about it and I feel that it's not fair that they, they're forcing us out here to work. But at the, at the same time, it's still my job and it's, it's I'm required to do it. And I just have to get up every day and do it and just pray that I stay safe, pray that I stay healthy and just carry on until this pandemic ends. That's what keeps me going, just to know that I'm doing something for someone that may need that help. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. I'm Maggie Penman. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.